everyone. This is Sydney Menson from Inside Scientific, the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Our real science sessions focus on connecting with the researchers, educators, and industry professionals from all walks of life that make scientific discovery and innovation possible. We talk about their work, their passions, their pitfalls, why they got into science in the first place, and where the road lies ahead. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Christopher Perry, an associate professor with the School of Kinesiology and Health Science at York University. His lab investigates the regulation of skeletal muscle metabolism. Specifically, a major focus of his is on a development of therapeutic strategies to improve muscle fitness in rare muscle disorders and in cancer and chemotherapy-induced muscle weakness. We've brought Chris in today to not only share his career path, but also his ideas and future goals of creating a CRO to be able to further help those with muscle disease, but also provide further opportunity for his trainees. I'd like to thank Aurora Scientific for sponsoring today's episode. Aurora Scientific supports the scientific community in its goal of research and discovery by providing precision instrumentation of the highest quality design, construction, and functionality for muscle physiology, material science, and neuroscience applications. All right, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for including me. It's fun. Yeah, I'm excited to hear all about your life. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. We'll keep that for you. <laughs> Great. Uh, let's get started with the first question here. Where did you grow up and how did your youth influence your path and passion towards science? Yeah, I grew up in, in a few small towns um, outside of Toronto, um, usually within an hour. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I was thinking about that question about how did my youth influence me to get into science in general? And I thought, what was the first thing? And what I remember as a, as a, as a boy was um, my mom buying me books on astronomy, stars and planets and stuff like that. And I very quickly decided one day I'd be an astronomer. And then I got into high school and one way or another started to become really fascinated with, with how the body works. And I don't remember that transition at all. But, um, but I do remember a conversation at the end of high school with my guidance counselor. He said, so what, what are you interested in? I said, well, human physiology, exercise, science. And he said, have you ever heard the word kinesiology? And I said, no. And uh, I said, you should look into that. So I did. And I just thought, I just felt that excitement. Like, I think that's what I want to apply to. That's what I want to learn about. Wasn't too sure what I wanted to be, but had that, uh, that was Mr. Jones um, at Acton High School who said, uh, you should look into kinesiology. And now I'm in the School of Kinesiology at York. And I actually connected with him a few years ago and told him that story. So that would be a big influence on me. That's so wonderful that you've kept in touch, um, even after all these years that you've with uh, with your teacher. <laughs> um, so, of course, you're currently at York University, but before that, where did you study, and how did you end up studying muscle health and mitochondrial disease specifically? Mm -hmm. Yeah, as a fourth year um, student in human kinetics at University of Guelph, I wanted to see what research was about. So I did a fourth year research project with um, Dr. Brian Wilson, who's now retired. 
and he was full of enthusiasm, still is. Um, and he had these ideas for, I won't get into all the details, but um, um, looking at the effects of exercise on, on the ability to improve your runtime to performance, using whole body measures, no muscle biopsies, a um, little bit of blood samples, but things like VO2 max and max ventilation and, and um, very applied measures. And for me, I had no idea research could be, you know, something where you're yelling at someone on a bike. I thought it would just be sitting in this little dank lab, like first year chemistry, mixing this chemical and that chemical. And your assignment was to describe um, um, what the color change was and, and why that was. And now today, I think that's the coolest thing. And I'd love to learn more about it. But at the time, I didn't know. I thought that's all research was. And I so I, I got to see what human research can be in exercise physiology. Um, could be in research. So he took me on as a master's student and I loved it so much that I wanted to now delve more into the mechanisms by which our fitness is determined. So I did a PhD with Lawrence Spreet in the same department and he um, also did applied um, research, but he added muscle biopsies to that, taking biopsies from people before and after the exercise and taught me biochemistry, you know, how to, how to um, understand the regulation of uh, very specific metabolic pathways in muscle that convert your food into energy, essentially. And so I did a thesis on how exercise um, improves the regulation of skeletal muscle metabolism in humans. And I was hooked. I was absolutely hooked. I thought, okay, this is what I want to do. I think I want to be a professor. I'm not sure, but I know I love this. So I went with what I love. Then I did a postdoc, but now what I wanted to learn was delve more in, deeply into within mitochondria, um, how are various metabolic pathways regulated with um, new techniques that were gaining popularity um, uh, at the time. And I also now wanted to understand how muscles get worse. I felt I had a pretty good grasp on how muscles get better. When you, when you stress them with exercise, you improve their fitness. Um, um, I wondered if I could learn more about how to conduct clinical research on diseases that make muscle fitness decline. I didn't have the disease aspect. I also wanted to learn how to do preclinical research. So preclinical being not humans, cell culture and rodents. So then I did a postdoc in North Carolina with Dr. Daryl Neufer and learned both of those. Um, I, I was uh, exposed to clinical research on how um, overnutrition Overeating and sedentarism leads to insulin resistance, which can eventually lead to type 2 diabetes. And then I also did um, some rodent work um, on um, actually not related to that as much more methodologies, um, refining methodologies to study mitochondrial function of very small muscle samples. Um, I know there's a lot to unpack there, but I won't bore you with it. And then I um, and then, um, and I, when I came to York as faculty, I, I, um, was, had all these plans, plans to pursue both of those topics, exercise, type two diabetes. And I went to a presentation on somebody was presenting on Duchenne muscular dystrophy and metabolic dysfunction of muscle. And I realized I don't know anything about this disease. And then after the talk, I realized I don't know anything about 
um, muscle weakness disorders. I know metabolic disorders. And I wondered if there was opportunity to move sideways with the expertise I had at the cellular level and then move up in various diseases, so to speak. So rather than defining myself as just a diabetes researcher, just an exercise researcher, if I can understand the regulation of mitochondrial functions, or I, I, I mean, that was my expertise, how creative can I be in applying that expertise to determine two things? One, the degree to which there's mitochondrial stress, some people say dysfunction, um, in various diseases that are receiving very little attention but are linked with a theme of muscle weakness. And two, can we translate those discoveries into preclinical therapy development um, approaches? So once we discover specific metabolic pathways that are uh, irregular, dysfunctional in, a, in muscle from a muscle weakness disorder, how would I ever go about testing or perhaps developing new compounds at that preclinical level? And so it was an evolution over the years that uh, brought us to where we are today, which I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about. Yeah, that's great. So you, you kind of started almost backwards, I guess, like started at the larger level and brought your way down to the, so. yeah, the cellular and the, the preclinical level. So that's very much so. It's yeah. Very and interesting. I, should, I should note um, that, that I've come back up to the human as well. <laughs> so we do muscle biopsies. I, I personally do the muscle biopsies. Um, um, and um, we are back to using exercise uh, or researching exercise induced um, uh, metabolic remodeling in muscle in humans. But I view it now as an opportunity to see how exercise stresses muscle to invoke a positive adaptation to understand the potential of where muscle can go as almost as a reference point for that when we then look at muscle in these various diseases to see how even though they're also exposed to stressors, they're not improving. They're actually getting worse. And that's actually what's really fascinating to come back to the whole body human level again and to, to compare it. So it's like a spectrum. If muscles are highly adaptable, both positive and negative, and we view that as a lab, as a spectrum, then we need the exercise studies in, in humans. And um, so, so as you said, big picture back, uh, down, but we're coming back up. Yeah, really full circle. That's great. Um, so you touched a little bit on it, but what is your typical approach for developing a therapy using a preclinical model like a mouse and then translating that into humans? And can you touch a little bit on how Aurora Scientific's equipment helps with that? Mm -hmm. Well, to, to study a muscle weakness disorder, you need a way to measure muscle weakness. So that requires a system that measures force production within muscles. And... Um, um, there's whole body approaches, and then there's in situ and in vitro. Um, and so Aurora's system is absolutely essential for, for determining whether or not a given drug that we are testing in a rodent um, prevents muscle weakness. Now, we also add whole body measures such as grip strength or various you know, uh, treadmill tests, uh, voluntary running wheels, and so on. There's others. Um, 
the challenge with those tests is that they're also uh, subject to a choice, the choice of the mouse to continue or to stop in general. There's ways to motivate ethically, but um, at the end of the day, they also have a behavioral component. And so when you think about the diseases we're studying, you, you wonder what sort of level of discomfort the mice are feeling. Maybe they're just not motivated to exercise. Does that mean they have muscle weakness? So how do you determine whether behavior, reduced physical activity in any of these tests is actually due to weak muscles or some other factor like pain and so on? Well, it doesn't mean we exclude those tests. We do them, but we then add on muscle-specific force measures. And their, uh, the Aurora system was the one we started with, and it's just the best. It's, uh, and it's broadly known. So um, it's been transformative. In fact, um, we've got uh, one drug, one partnership that's um, using that system one drug appears to be preventing weakness in the diaphragm by up to 30% in mice with Duchenne. And if we didn't measure muscle force, we wouldn't know that. Wow. That's incredible. Um, a little before, before we kind of started chatting here, you had mentioned that you want to move your basic work maybe a little bit into more of that CRO or, or some, something similar. How do you plan on using a CRO or something similar to, to bring more opportunity, but it's still going to benefit your trainees? Yeah, that's an excellent question. All of our industry partnerships to date have been a result of either me reaching out to a company that had um, a pipeline or, or a compound already in, in existence that, that mechanistically had potential to, to correct the dysfunctions we and others in these fields are seeing. So I would approach them. Um, in two cases, it was the other way around. They had heard of our work and approached us, and that's working quite well. Um, it's so exciting to partner with, with industry partners. And so far, most of that's been pharma. Some of um, there's, there's new ones coming along that aren't pharma, nutritional therapies and even other technologies, um, not necessarily for the Duchenne work, but for other things that, you know, maybe I just keep going that way. Maybe it's just, okay, it's coming. And when we approach, sometimes there's interest and sometimes there's not. Or is this something that we can expand? Is there something that, um, is there an approach to bring more of those opportunities along? Because it has been not just fulfilling for myself to, to, to have a component of our research that is application of our knowledge to developing at a preclinical level, trying to identify candidate compounds in partnership with industry that they have the ability to go to clinical trials. I don't, you know, um, that, that, this, is, this has been so productive and um, so exciting. I'd like to see more of those opportunities come. So the question is, do we just keep going along or do I bring it to the next level somehow? And that's where I'm at the learning stage. I'm at the learning stage about CROs. And certainly there are people, probably people listening to this that have already done this and know about it. And then please reach out to me because I'm at the learning stage. My only thought so far, even though I'm not sure if a CRO would make a big difference, is the factors I'm looking for and the factors I'd like to, to learn about. One is, will it accelerate discovery and identification of new potential therapies that are um, that, that, that is following a process that 
works for progression to clinical trials with industry partners. And when I say progression that works, it's a lot to unpack there, but I, I just mean, um, you know, you can discover a compound, you can probably go buy any compound or, or that you want that's commercially available, test it. How are you going to progress? How are you going to progress that to actually testing people? You need the industry partner and clinical partners. So how does a CRO bring those all together? Um, is it just, you know, it's marketing and it's branding or is there other things about this, certainly the other, under this umbrella of will it accelerate discovery and application is, is the question of whether it also brings in more resources, people, technology, and uh, funding. So I'm learning about that. But in all of this, it has to achieve the second objective, which is this good for the students. Students are number one, right up there with the discovery. And they've the feedback I've gotten from the students is they get, they love to see someone that's not just in our group. And that wasn't a negative, like I'm actually paraphrasing them. As far as I know, they're pretty happy in the lab. They say they're happy in the lab, but you've, I've, the value to the students has been to fly to a company, to Zoom with a company, to meet a clinician. And when you're doing this type of research, um, those people come into their experience, the student's experience. Now, I could just have meetings with them, but why would I do that? First of all, I can't remember everything they remember. They're the experts, so I, they, they're, they're needed. But secondly, this is their opportunity to learn with me about the translation process. And it builds opportunities and networks. And one student was flown down to um, the U.S. to meet a company partner. And at, in, the evening, in the evenings, in the evenings um, get to talk to their medical science liaisons, even though they weren't part of our collaboration. And they got to talk to them. And they learned about careers they didn't know about. So why wouldn't I keep doing this? And so if a CRO brings more of that for the students, um, so long as it doesn't take away what we're, the experience that we currently have with our system, then, then this is good. And uh, I think it will just bring more in. So long answer about my uncertainties, but two guiding principles. What's really, yeah, what's really interesting is how it's it, it is going to be like a mutualistic relationship you're you're not only looking to benefit yourself or not even just your lab you're obviously looking to benefit the, the patients out there that you're helping but bringing it back on on your trainees too so that they get that experience and um i think that's that's super interesting and we'll be looking out for <laughs> whatever you end up deciding to move ahead with yeah, thank you. I'm I'm uh, using those principles to learn about it, and and you mentioned the patients. That's another thing that um, I, I know we'll talk about in a minute is um, how to do more interaction with the patient communities. Yeah, that's true, and I'm sure that they love meeting you guys. I mean, you're the ones, you know, behind the desk at the lab doing all the work to help them. So that's wonderful. There's been a couple conversations, so we hope for more. That's awesome. You alluded a little bit about some people that you work with, um, you know, outside of the lab. Uh, what's your latest experience in working with a not-for-profit, and how does that further then inform your trainees and, and your research? Oh, this is a brand new thing for us, and we're really excited about it, you know, um, each of these steps has been something new for me. And so the latest is, is um, not-for-profit, as you say. We've been funded by not-for-profits in the past, private um, philanthropic foundations. And, and um, that's, that's 
been interesting to see what they prioritized and their accountability and who they're accountable to. Um, but our latest is with Muscular Dystrophy Canada. And Muscular Dystrophy Canada, if you go to muscle.ca, um, they're an advocacy group raising awareness for people with neuromuscular muscular disease, not just Duchenne, um, uh, which, which we're studying right now. Um, um, but they also do uh, knowledge translation activities, keeping patient communities up to speed on the latest research for emerging therapies in their, their field, uh, uh, pardon me, in their specific disease and so on. So we've received funding graciously from, from Muscular Dystrophy Canada because they do enormous fundraising efforts um, from various donors. But part of this grant, this is what became very exciting as well, was we were able to obtain matched funding from a program called MyTax. And MyTax is a federal program that's focused on providing funding for trainees um, to gain internship opportunities with um, not-for-profits, but also industry. And so what this means is Muscular Dystrophy Canada is currently funding our research in the development of certain compounds in these preclinical models. My tax is funding students to go and work with Muscular Dystrophy Canada outside the lab, away from the bench, in their activities with the patient communities. And we've never done this. And in fact, um, I, you know, got an email a couple of days ago from Muscular Dystrophy Canada that we're ready. We're ready to, because this is brand new. They said, when can we meet with the students to plan the first activities? And we had already designed the activities in advance, and there's several. And I'll just, like, for an example, one of them is, again, knowledge translation, um, involving the students in developing newsletters that use their expertise to, to assist Muscular Dystrophy Canada with summarizing the latest discoveries for who, who's the target audience for the patient communities. What patient communities, what diseases? Well, that's what we're going to meet about. The second is they're going to create like this, webinars, working with Muscular Dystrophy Canada, but not just behind the scenes, actually the students up front and also implementing this and meeting, meeting the patient communities. We talked about that integration of students with, with people at the conference. We've wanted more of that, people, you know, we, but, but rather than just going to conferences where patients speak, or people with these diseases speak, now we can actually interact directly with them through these, K, through these KT activities with this not-for-profit, which is amazing. And the team at Muscular Dystrophy Canada is so intrinsically motivated when you talk to them. They feel they want to see their efforts make an impact that, I just can't tell you how excited I am about this. And um, um, uh, that's our latest. That's our latest is bringing not-for-profits into this in a way that also brings trainees to not just the patient communities, but also to they will see how a not-for-profit works. They will see how advocacy works. They will see how to translate complex knowledge to a target audience more so than they do already through conferences. So it's also about the students being exposed to the team at Muscle, Muscular Dystrophy Canada. And, and it's the same for myself. I'm learning with them. So I better stop talking. I'm so excited <laughs> about this. But uh, I, I, I don't know what benefits will come. I think I know. I think you know. But I know we will see benefits we didn't see coming. I think it's going to be great. That is very exciting. And I can feel your excitement through the webcam. So <laughs> hopefully we'll hear more about it soon um, as you get working in there and working with them. That's that's 
super exciting. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah, we're very appreciative of Muscudish Canada for doing this and my text because it's so unique, that kind of partnership. Yeah, again, you're both helping each other. So I think it's perfect relationship. That's that's great. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, Chris, thank you so much for your time and your insights. It was such a pleasure to have you with us. Oh, you're welcome. I'm always happy to share what I don't know and what I'm trying to figure <laughs> out. <laughs> it's been a real pleasure and um, thank you very much. Thanks, Chris. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Real Science and that you'll tune in to future episodes where scientists just like you answer questions about their life, their work, and share insights into what it's like to be doing real science. Don't forget to subscribe.